listeners some time for questions? No. Yeah, we better start quick then. It's a short class, nine o'clock. So let's uh, do the Brahmanandam begin. <coughs> oh, Brahmanandam Paramasukadam Kevalam Yamurtim Janvatitam Gaganasadrisham Tatvamsiyadilakshyam Ekam Nityam Nimachalam Sarvadi Sakshibutam Pavatitam Regunarahitam Sadgurutam Namami Om Shanti 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 So I thought I would, this last class, we'll, we'll try to divide up into two ways. One is, I just want to go over the, the main topics that I, was, that I think that we've discussed here by asking the listeners to see if somebody can answer these questions. According to Advaita Vedanta, as I presented it, what is the meaning of ignorance? Somebody give me a, uh, a definition or an explanation. Veda Marti. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a mutual and superimposition. It's a, it's a misconception. If you take uh, your self as something limited and that you superimpose uh, the qualities of the self on the limited things and you don't really see the difference it's mixed it up it's exactly right there's a mutual mixing up of the self and the not self and a transference of the qualities of one upon the other the consciousness that only belongs to the self has been transferred to the ego, the intellect, the mind, the senses, and the body. And we feel that this body, mind, senses, and intellect is conscious. And the qualities of the body, mind, senses, intellect, and ego, all of those qualities have been transferred on the self. That's called anyonya adhyasa, or a mutual mixing up or a mutual superimposition of one upon the other. That is the only ignorance in Vedanta. There's no other problem. It's the cause of all suffering. The whole purpose of Vedanta is to remove that misconception. The misconception is gone. All of duality will cease. If consciousness is not identified with the mind, it doesn't know anything. You can't know duality unless you take yourself to have a mind. In deep sleep, we don't have a mind, and there's no duality. As soon as the mind is there, the duality is there. So when that mixing up through Viveka, 
through discrimination, seeing who is the self and what is the not-self, who is the knower and what is known, who is the witness and what is witnessed. And what I mean by seeing this, it's by examining <laughs> your own experience, bless you, that you'd be able to see that there was a mistake. This concept of avidya is in everyone's common experience. So it's not a dogma that you have to accept. You can see the truth of it, that you have mixed up yourself with the not-self. And this is the cause of all your suffering. That's avidya in Advaita Vedanta. Shankara says, this is the anarthahetu, the cause of all suffering, is merely this misconception. Asya anarthahetu prahanaya, in order to destroy this source of all evil, atmaikatva vidya pratipattaye, and in order to realize the oneness of the self, atmaikatva vidya, the word atmaikatva, oneness, doesn't mean merely the oneness of the jiva and paramatma, or the individual and the supreme reality. Atmaikatva has a much more important meaning. Not only am I identical with that absolute reality, that reality is the only reality that there is. It's aikatva. It's oneness. There's nothing other than that. It's not that you are one with the Absolute and the Absolute is manifesting as this world or it's transformed itself into this world. Or There's only one reality without a second. That's atmaikatva vidya, the knowledge of the oneness of the self not merely your identification of the self with the Supreme, but that self, that Supreme reality is the only reality. It's just one orange. There's no other orange that's the same as it. There's no other orange that's different from it. And within that orange, there's no duality at all. That's Atmaikatva Vidya. Sarva Vedanta Rabhite. All the Vedantas, all the Upanishads have begun merely to destroy prahanaya, this misconception. There's no other cause for samsara and there's no other way to put an end to samsara than removing this misconception. This is what Vedanta does. This is what the guru who's teaching you Vedanta does. The guru is the spokesperson for Vedanta. He teaches us an Advaita guru is not some independent guy that has his own ideas and he's going to teach you what he thinks. An Advaita guru is the guru that teaches you the meaning of the Upanishads. And if you're qualified enough to understand his teaching, that misconception goes. When the mis misconception goes, you remain as the self. Remaining as the self, not knowing it, remaining as the self is called mukti. Just abiding as your own self, 
that Satchitananda Swarupa. So that's avidya, very good. Can anybody tell me, according to Vedanta, what is the true nature of the self? As opposed to what normal people think that the self is, what is the basic concept about the self, Atman, who I am in Vedanta? What is the basic concept when we teach the nature of the self? Can anybody say? Satchitananda, the all-pervading consciousness, which is unchanging, untouched, not doing anything. That is the nature of the self, but there's a unique, um, a, a unique concept by which Vedantins teach this non-dual Satchitananda self. They call it. In the Gita, it's called Shetragnya. In the Upanishads and in the Gita also, they call it Sakshi. The witness of the I thought. Everybody thinks the self is, I am so-and-so. Ahaminam, I am this. I'm a man, I come from Woodstock, getting older sitting on a table, a chair here. This I thought that we all have about ourselves is not the I of Vedanta. There's a witness of that thought, that Sakshi Chaitanya, that conscious, that witnessing consciousness, which is in everybody equally at all times, is the self of Vedanta. It's the unique teaching of Vedanta, Nobody takes the self to be that witness. And that witness is as you described it. It's one without a second. Because the witness is just maya. The witnessed is just maya. It appears to exist, but it never was. It isn't while it's appearing, and it never will be. So that sakshi is the one and only reality. It never changes. And that's the definition of reality in Vedanta. That which never changes is real. And that which is changing, that which is coming and going, that which is peering and disappearing, that which is known is the not-self. This type of discrimination between the self and the not-self is what puts an end to the ignorance. We naturally mix up the witness with the ego. The ego is the one who says, I am fat or thin, the body. I am blind, deaf, the senses. I am happy, I am sad, the mind. I believe this. I'm convinced about this. It's called the buddhi. And the one who's the, the headpin, the kingpin of all of this is the ego. The very root of it all is this I notion. And we're all identified with this. I was born, I'm getting old, 
I'm going to get sick and I will die, that I thought, there is a witness in you that's different from that I thought, but they become so mixed up, they're like milk and water. And unless the mind becomes very subtle and very pure and very introvert, we can never even imagine that I've mixed up my true self with this ego and that there's a mistake involved in the whole thing. It's not until somebody points it out to you that you begin to question, has there been a mistake? Am I really this ego? Or is there something else in me that's different from that ego? In the second shloka of this 13th chapter, Krishna said, Shetragnya chapi mam vidi, know that Shetragnya to be me, the supreme reality. Servic Shetreshu in all of the bodies, within every body. There is a reality, and we can come to know about this if you examine your experience by introverting your mind. That's the true nature of the self in Vedanta, the witnessing consciousness that's always present, the only reality that's called Atma Aikatva, the oneness of the self. The witness is one and there's no second thing other than it. Then why do they call it a witness? Because we think that there's something witnessed. So in order to remove the idea that you're the witnessed, they superimpose on the self that he's the witness. But you have to go one step further and realize the witnessed is just an appearance in the self. It has no reality. Then the witnessed is no witness. It's that ekam advitiyam brahma, the non-dual brahman, which is one without a second. Can somebody tell me the method of Vedanta? Say, for example, you are ignorant, that's not true, to remove it afterwards. Ah. So there's two parts. What are the two parts? First, to, to say something, and then to remove it afterwards. That's the method of Vedanta. That's the only method of Vedanta. There is no method of Vedanta. If you don't know that method, then you're going to think that what the Vedanta says in the beginning is true, that you really are ignorant, that you really have to get the knowledge of the self, that when you get the knowledge of the self, you'll be free. But that's only for the purpose of teaching, because in the end, you'll come to realize I never had any ignorance. I didn't need any knowledge. My nature is eternally free. The whole teaching about that was not the truth. 
In the end, those ideas have to be negated. If in the end, you still have those ideas that now I know it, now I'm free, now I know that the world is not what it seems to be, now I know that myself is Satchitananda, that is not Vedanta. When there's no more knower, no knowledge, and nothing known, that is called the knowledge of the self. To know means to be. Just like in deep sleep, there's no knower, knowing, and known. You are that. That's mukti. That's your nature, deep sleep. But your nature never changes. So how you were in deep sleep, one without a second, is how you are right now. Nothing changed when the waking appeared. Nothing changes when the waking disappears. You are the unchanging reality. You never had any ignorance. There was no bondage for you. You didn't need a guru. Even the Veda, even the Upanishads, Veda Veda Bhavati, even the Veda becomes no Veda. In the end, there's no scripture, no guru, no student, no bondage, no liberation, no creation, no destruction, and nobody liberated. Why? Advaita. Can somebody kind of outline, outline what they think according to what we were reading and discussing here? What are the main sadhanas? What are the spiritual practices if somebody wants to get rid of this misconception and realize the truth that their self is ever free and ever pure and ever awake? What are the sadhanas? Or is no sadhana necessary? You can just hear this teaching and everybody can just get this thing. Or are there some prerequisites, some qualifications? What are the qualifications of a student of Vedanta? What are the sadhanas that will allow that person to realize this truth not merely appreciate it intellectually, understand it, but that it will be... All I can say is your own direct, immediate experience. It's kind of like reading a menu and eating the food. You can understand, I'm sure you're all intelligent. Most of you have understood what I've been talking about. I don't think it's very complicated. But it doesn't make us jnanis. The ignorance doesn't go merely just by understanding it. We all know this very clearly. When you walk out of the room here, you're walking out. If you understand what I'm teaching, nobody leaves the room. 
you think you go through that door, you haven't understood what I'm talking about. We all walk through the door. We've got a life waiting for us out there. That's because we haven't understood the teaching. We're not qualified for it. What are the sadhanas that are necessary? What are some of the sadhanas? Can somebody say? These are two experts. Someone else? Madame. <laughs> um, humility, it would be one. Sorry? Humility. Humility. Okay. Um, then, um, I, don't, I don't think I know all four, but the, the turning in of the mind um, and purifying the mind would be the second one. And, oh, the withdrawing of the senses in order to turn the mind uh, in. And um, the third one escapes me, but I think those are important. Those are some. What about the quality of dispassion? Is it necessary to have some dispassion towards the things outside to be a Vedantin? Or can you continue running after all the things that everybody else is running after and be qualified for this type of wisdom? Indriyarteshu varagyam Having dispassion for the objects of the senses. One of the key ingredients without vairagya, the mind is extroverted. <coughs> there's no way, there's nothing so far away. That witness is so far away when the mind is out, and there's nothing so near. We had that verse. Durastam antikecha. It is far away for the ignorant person who's looking for happiness outside. But it's the closest thing for those who have introverted their mind because it's their very self. There's nothing so near, so close, so evident for the person who's purified their minds, who's turned away from the pursuits of worldly enjoyments. That's the sadhana. That's the basic sadhana. There's more to it than that. If you want to make your mind sattvic, you should get on a sattvic diet. You should eat foods that purify the mind. Yoga, methinks, is not for one who eats too much, nor for one who doesn't eat at all. Yoga, methinks, is not for one who sleeps too much, nor for one who doesn't sleep at all. Adopting a life of moderation in all things, even in recreation. It's funny what recreation is, <laughs> according to Shankaracharya. You would think it's going to a concert or having some fun. He says, taking a walk is recreation. Okay. But adopting a lifestyle that's conducive to this type of understanding sattvic food, satsang, arati jana samsati, having a distaste for wanting to always pay, hanging around with people whose minds are so extrovert that they, all they can think about is their possessions. All they want to talk about is what they got or what they're going to get. 
This type of business will take you nowhere. But people that share this interest, being with them will actually help purify the mind. It's called satsang. Charyupasana, perhaps the greatest aid is to be able to sit with the teacher who sets the example for us so we can see what it might look like, how a person could be happy regardless of what he has or doesn't have, how a person could lead an absolutely simple life but be totally contented, more than contented, Ramantaha, he revels in that wisdom. He finds his joy and his happiness there. It brings him the greatest happiness. When his mind goes out, he feels, I want to get back to that. At the end of Gaudapada's Karikas, he says, Shalaniketa, Achalaniketa. And Shankara describes those two qualities that for the wise man, when certain things happen like he's hungry, at that time the mind has to go out and he finds some food. But as soon as that's called chalaniketa, naturally the mind has to go out for food or to make a fire or a shelter or get some clothing. Or whenever the occasion arises, the mind goes out, that's called chalaniketa. But as soon as he's finished that business, naturally, with no effort, achalaniketa, he re returns to that achala, that thing that never moves, that never changes. That's his life. Chalaniketa, when the karma requires that he has to do something, go to the bathroom, that's chalaniketa. But when he's finished, achalaniketa. This is how his Vyavahara, his empirical life is like that. In the course of the discourse, I was talking about there's two ways to look at a jnani. I said there's the true jnani, who he really is, and how the jnani appears in the world to the ignorant people like us. And somebody kind of tell me, what are the two views of a jnani? A jnani means the knower of the self. Christian. The true jnani was just the self itself. Oh, so... The true... Jnani is the self. The true Jnani is the self. And you cannot see him, you cannot touch him, um, you cannot speak with him, uh, you cannot think of him. Um, it cannot, the Jnani cannot think itself. So, and then there's um, okay. the Jnani that, the Jnani Nishta that you can see, that you can talk to, and um, his mind is um, inwards to the self. Uh, rooted in the self, however you want to say it. And, yeah. There's one more little thing. His mind is rooted in the self, the jnana nishta, 
He also has one other quality. <coughs> Anybody? Guru Eva Abhigachet, the Upanishad says, to a guru alone you should go. Please. Uh, he can say to the qualified student, tap on the seat, and then that student will understand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he has a knowledge of the scriptures. Shrotriya. He knows the meaning of the scriptures. Not only does he know the meaning of the scriptures, he knows the method of the scriptures, how they work, this deliberate superimposition, and then resition. Every scripture, whether it's the Bridharanyaka, the biggest one, or the Mandukya, it's the same method. There's no difference whether you read a thousand shlokas or twelve shlokas. Every Upanishad has to, in the end, negate that neti neti or in the seventh mantra of the mandukya na anta pragna na bahis pragna na ubayata pragna na pragna na pragna na pragnana gana it just re negates the whole thing whatever it said in the first six mantras negated then in the eighth ninth tenth and eleventh whatever it says in the twelfth mantra amatra it negates the whole Om. Om is not A-U-Ma. That's not the Om. And the self is not the witness of the waking dream of deep sleep. Just negations. At the very end, whatever it said, it negated. Twice it negates. What is the very best text in Vedanta if you want to know what the sadhana is to realize the self? The Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. With the correct bhashya. <laughs> With the correct bhashya. And sorry to say, if you read the bhashya independently by yourself, it won't be the greatest pundits have studied the Bhashya, they can repeat it almost by heart, and they don't understand the Bhashya. Studying the Gita with the Bhashya, with a teacher, is the way to understand Vedanta. It's not a subject, it's an independent study. You really can't do it by yourself. In our ignorance, we can't figure this thing out. And you need a teacher who can present it in the proper way. That's the guru. That's who you have to go to. His mind must be established in that truth. He has to know the method of Vedanta. And I would say one more thing. He has to be the example. His, how he lives, becomes the example for us. If he's talking Vedanta, but you see he's behaving just like every other ignorant person, then you should have doubts about who this teacher really is. If he's filled with desires, if he's 
late at night, eating doses <laughs> in his room. <laughs> Not going to work. So he should be the example. He should know the method of Vedanta and he should be established in that truth. And all of those qualities of humility, control of the senses, dispassion for the objects, lack of hypocrisy, all of those things that we have to try to acquire through effort, making an effort, that teacher should exhibit those qualities with no effort at all. They become his very nature. He's not trying or she's not trying to become humble. They're not trying to control their senses. They've lost all interest in it. They know where the happiness resides. The mind just want to go where the happiness is. As long as we're convinced there's some happiness out there, the mind will run after it. It's not until it realizes there's not a drop of happiness to be found there, not real happiness, because the momentary happiness causes suffering. The one that you love the most will someday make you cry. They're going to die, or you'll die, and you'll have to leave your loved one behind. That can't be the source of infinite happiness. It's not only that that happiness comes and ends. The truth of it is, it's not even real. So there can't be any real happiness there at all. Those are the two reasons why the mind should look somewhere else for the happiness it's seeking. And then the teacher in the Vedanta points out that very happiness that you're looking for, you are that happiness. You are the infinite, unending happiness. That's called Ananda. Class over? No. <laughs> Just wanted to read a few more verses from the Gita, we have 15 minutes. Do, are there some more questions? How about some more questions, please? Uh, can you <coughs> say something about uh, Prakriti? Prakriti. Prakriti in the meaning of uh, Shankara. So the word Prakriti merely means nature. Prakriti is nature. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Prakriti is made up of three things. Anybody know the three things that Prakriti is made up of? Yeah. It's made up of the three gunas. Prakriti is three guna atmika. It's made up of three gunas, sattva, rajas, and tamas. And that's the only Prakriti. But in Vedanta, unlike Patanjali Yoga, Prakriti <laughs> is called Maya, that which appears to exist, but in truth never was, it isn't even while it's appearing, and it never <coughs> will be. That's called Prakriti in Vedanta. 
this nature that I see outside with my senses is called Prakriti. In Vedanta, that Prakriti is just like a dream. Just like in the dream, all the nature is just an appearance in your consciousness. It's Maya. Prakriti in Vedanta is Maya. Whereas in every other philosophy, Prakriti is Prakriti. And that Maya is imagined by ignorance. When the ignorance goes, there'll be no Prakriti. When the ignorance goes, there'll be no Gunas. There's a portion in the Bhagavad Gita that says you have to become a gunatita. You have to go beyond the gunas. Guna atita. Beyond the gunas. So I'm going to ask you a tough question now. Is the jnani the one who has gone beyond the gunas? Is the jnani a gunatita? We have one lady shaking her head. Why isn't a jnani a beyond the gunas? Because there are no gunas. Ho! <laughs> Give that lady a prize. That's it. He's not even a gunatita. If you think there's gunas, then you're the witness and you're beyond the gunas. But the final thing is, since there never was any gunas, there's no gunas now, there never will be, there's no guna atita. It was merely a halfway house, but not the final teaching. You have to go beyond the gunas, but in the end, there's not even any gunas. Is Jagat sinless? Jagat means the world. The world is Prakriti. Prakriti is made up of the three gunas, and it's all Maya. The world is Maya, Prakriti is Maya, Guna is Maya. It's all imagined by ignorance, because when you know the self, you'll see that's all that ever was, that's all that ever is, that's all that ever will be. It's always here, it's always present, it's never changing. The Upanishad says, Etat atmiyam servam. That which is the essence of all of this, just like the essence of the rope, of the snake is the rope, the essence of the mirage is the desert, the essence of the city in the sky is the clouds, the truth of it, the reality of it, etat atmiyam servam, that which is the essence, the reality, atmiyam, the true self. The word atma in Sanskrit, we translate it as self. But really what it means is a thing's real nature is called atman. You could say agni atmika, the nature of fire. Triguna atmika, the nature of the three gunas. Atma means a thing's true nature. Our atma is our true nature. Etat atmiyam, that which is the true nature. In English we call it the essence. 
that which is the true nature, atmiyam, sarvamidam, of all of this. What is all of this? You know, we have to remember, when you go all of this, usually what we do is, we go all of this, but we forget to throw this into the mix. Right? All of this. But all of this is this, this thing too, and this ego, and this mind is all in the this. Sarvamidam. The essence of it, the true nature of it. Atmiyam, sarvamidam. Etat atmiyam, sarvamidam. Whatever that is, tatsatyam. That is real. The essence of it is real. Not the names and forms. You call it a snake, you call it a stick, you call it a garland. Nama rupa. But the atmiyam is the rope alone. Tatsatyam, that is the reality. Saatma, that is the self. Tatvamasi svetaketu. You are that. My son, Svetaketu, over and over again, he teaches him this. That which is the essence of all of this, that which pervades the whole thing and gives it reality, that is the warp and woof of the whole thing, that is called Atman. That is who you are. You are the truth of the Prakriti. Without you, there's no prikriti. Without you, there's no gunas. Without you, there's no world. Jagat. Take away the consciousness, see what happens to the world. Take away the world, see what happens to consciousness. You have to do this in your own experience. It's a subjective science. It's the science of everyone's common experience. So by examining your experience, you can say, you see, that without me there, the dream cannot appear. I'm the light that lights up the whole dream. You have to see the fact of the matter. I'm the essence of the whole dream. I pervade the whole dream. I'm the Vishnu for the dream. Well, I'm the Vishnu for this waking state too, in which the whole world of duality appears. There's only one truth here, that thing that pervades the whole thing that never changes. That's the truth of this world, is only my own self. To see that fact, to know that fact in your own experience, for it to culminate directly in your own experience. Not because some guru said it, not because some ancient text said it, but because it's an immediacy. It's an obvious thing to you. You can see it directly, not indirectly. This teaching culminates in the direct experience of the self. No samadhi necessary. The words themselves have to do the trick. The very words have to do the trick. But words can't describe it. So the only words that do the trick are what? 
see. You know, the sentence, you are that, sounds like a positive statement. But really, what it means is, you are not this, you are that. It's a negation. It doesn't mean anything different than neti, neti. Tatvamas, in the Naishkarma Siddhi, he says that this tatvamasi means not this, not this. When it says you are that, it's just negating that you are this. You are that means you're not this. It's a negation. The final teaching of the Upanishads is not this, not this. We had it in the 12th shloka of the Gita. Anadimat param brahma nasat nasat uchite. There's no higher teaching than that. But only the Adhikari, that person who's made themselves fit enough, pure enough, introverted enough, that neti neti vakya, that sentence, you are that, they can understand that the moment they hear it. The teacher says, you are that, and the student says, I am that. Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. If I'm Brahman, I have no birth, no death, no old age, no disease. I have no fear, no desire, no limitation. I am infinite bliss. I am perfect peace. Not the peace of peace of mind. The peace when there's no mind at all. That's Shanti. So the Vedanta is a very unique type of teaching. It requires the greatest efforts on our part to be able to experience the truth of this teaching. And the only way to do it is to begin to try to introvert our minds and then the scripture becomes clearer and clearer. The more sattvic our mind becomes, the more the scripture opens up its teaching to us. And in the end, when the mind has become so sattvic that it's able to go beyond the gunas by seeing that I'm the witness of the gunas, then you're a jnana Then you don't do anything. You're freed from the bondage of karma. You're a gunatita. You've gone beyond prakriti. You've gone beyond the jagat, the world. But you're not finished yet because if you think you're beyond the world or beyond the gunas, you're still in samsara. But at that stage, that person, he's the one who the teacher can say, you are that. And then even the jnana nishta goes. There's no jnana nishta. Nobody is established in the self. Nobody abides in the self. Nobody remains as the self. Why? Because if it was true, 
duality would be true. It'd be the self, somebody abiding in it. Can't happen. You can see the profundity of this teaching. You can't grasp it. As soon as you've grasped it, you've missed it. The very guy who wants to grasp it has to go. I feel like I'm leaving something out, but we'll have to wait to next class. <laughs> So, I was going to read some more verses from the Gita. I think that uh, there's not enough time. So we'll forget that. And uh, now, I've been critical of a lot of things and a lot of teachers and uh, I've said, oh, all of that is wrong and you have to understand this this way and no matter how much you take your foot and put it behind your head. It's... But now, let me take back some of that. <laughs> Practicing yoga is a wonderful thing. It keeps the body healthy. This body should be healthy, kept healthy. And yoga is a wonderful way to do that. As long as you're sick, if your knee hurts, you know where the mind is going to go? Right to that knee. We should keep our bodies as healthy as possible. Because when you're sick, all you'll be thinking about is which doctor you got to go to, how, what type of medicine you have to take. Keep the body healthy. Keep the body so that it's not a, a botheration to you. And the practice of yoga, yogic diet, yogic lifestyle, some at least some asanas to keep the body so it's not a big stiff thing that you, you, you can't even sit for a minute comfortably. To that extent, if you become a fanatic with hatha yoga and that's all that you do, then you'd have been going in a wrong direction. But some hatha yoga is wonderful. And to practice it somewhat is not a problem. It, it doesn't go against Vedanta. And watching your diet is absolutely... A Vedantin should watch their diet. There's a whole section in the Bhagavad Gita. I don't know about how many people are familiar. What is sattvic food? What is Rajasika food and what is Tamasika food? Does anyone know the section in the Gita? So you can take a look at that. It prescribes what is not only the amount, which is moderation in eating, but also the type of food. It should be the food that promotes health. And I'm not a dietitian, but it seems as though a vegetarian diet and even better for those of you who have the discipline, a vegan diet is probably not only the healthiest. You know that quality 
Amani tvam adam vitvam. Ahimsa. Ahimsa means not wanting to cause any harm to any living being, not just human beings. That vegan diet is the most moral diet because you're not bothering the animals. Yeah, you have to kill some plants, but we assume they don't suffer like when we use animals to get our sustenance. So it's a moral diet, and it's a healthy diet, and diet is important. If you're eating too much, the mind becomes Thomas. You want to sleep off. When I used to travel with Swami Dayananda, we used to, he had the most richest devotees in India, see, we'd pull up to these mansions and the, the wife of the house would prepare a meal to kill three elephants. <laughs> and they'd put it in front of me and Swamiji. And I don't know if you remember, especially in the South, they give you a, uh, a leaf and then they, 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 uh, they put some... Uh, a subji and then some uh, dal and then some uh, some uh, other things and then rice in the middle and then they take buttermilk and they pour it on and, and you're eating and eating you think you're finished you got to put your hand over they want to keep pouring and then at the end they give you another pile of white rice totally dead food all of the vegetables are totally overcooked filled with oil and spices totally horrible and then they take this thing called payasam. It's like this sweet... Um, uh, payasam is like rice pudding. And they pour it on the rice. And you schlup it up. And you finish off. And you know what everybody does after they have a meal like that? They sleep it off. Everybody takes a nap in the afternoon. One day I said to Swamiji, Swamiji, how can we be eating like this? Is this the diet of yogis? He said, what can I do? These are my disciples. They feed me this. If I say no, I'll be offending them. So when I got to this Swamiji, here's a picture of him. This is the old guy. He's about 75 here. But when I met him, he was 92. He looks pretty old in this picture. When I got to him, at some point we were discussing and I was talking about the meals that we would take and how Swamiji said he had no choice because the devotees, they would be serving it to him. And the Swamiji said, it's a very simple thing. All you had to do was go like this. Take your head and move this way and then move it that way. No. <laughs> no thank you. That's all he had to say. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> For people who want to pursue this, we should get on a good diet and try to get some control over it because it'll keep us healthy. If we're sick, we'll be running to the doctors. The Vedanta will recede into the back. If you're lucky enough to be healthy, then try to keep that health as long as possible. And that's by leading a somewhat yogic life, a sattvic life, a lifestyle that's conducive to this type of learning. This practical Vedanta, 
It's not just a question of keep reading the books over and over. It has to have some effect about how you live, how you treat other people, how you look at other people. To be a Vedantin means ekatma sarva bhuteshu. It's the self in me is the self in you. I love myself the most, but if I see myself in you, I'll feel compassion for you with no effort, because I make no effort to be in love with this body, because I'm sure this is who I am. I love this body very much. But when you see yourself, the Gita says, he who sees himself in all beings, even if you can't do it, you know that's the teaching, that that person sitting in front of you is yourself then the way you'll treat that person. You won't want to hurt them. You won't want to make them feel bad. You'll only feel compassion for them if they're hurting. Those are the qualities. It's not just reading something and memorizing something. There has to be a practical Vedanta. If it's not changing how you live, it's no Vedanta at all. It's just an academic study. You can get a grade and put it up on your wall there. It won't do anything for you. Maybe make you proud, but it won't. You have to change how you live. Vedanta is a, a philosophy of life. It's not an academic course that you get a PhD in. It puts an end to all PhDs. You are all the PhDs. That's the gift of Vedanta. It has to affect how you live. The mind becomes purer, the life becomes purer. Okay. Time's up. Can I have a few minutes? I'm sorry? Can I have a few minutes? Yes. Oh. Thank you for giving this Vedanta seminar, for your deep knowledge and 